okay kindly tell me your full name your age and where you are from my full name's jose carlos lugo i'm 33 years old i'm originally born and raised in los angeles california i currently live in denver colorado awesome so what do you do for a living you know currently i uh you know, travel the U.S. and I listen to people's stories and I share them on our social media platforms. That is, this is something that pays. Well, no, this is something that me and my brother um, started at the beginning of 2020, and you know, currently it's a passion project, and it's something um, that we've devoted not just our time, but obviously our finances and and. Um, and essentially our hearts to it. So it's what I do full time currently. Okay. Okay. And um, how did COVID affect that plan? Well, I mean, it didn't really deter us from what we were doing. Um, when we launched it in, at the beginning of 2020, um, you know, obviously we couldn't, have forecasted uh, COVID, um, but when COVID did occur, you know, we, me and um, my brother and my other brother, we all do this together. You know, we had a meeting and, you know, were we gonna stop traveling? Were we gonna, um, you know, put the brakes on what we were doing? Because the way we hear people's stories, we do them in person and we video record them in person. And then, you know, and then we, do the editing process after. So we asked ourselves that question. And to be honest, we were, we didn't know what was happening with COVID. I think, you know, I definitely was a little bit scared. I mean, you know, in the beginning of it, it did kind of seem like the world was ending. I mean, it was fear everywhere. And I was definitely a little bit afraid. But what we ended up deciding was that we would keep on going. And if there were still people who wanted to share their story in person that we would find a way to get to them. And that's what we've been doing ever since. That's really good. That's really nice. Uh, so what inspired you to create We're All One Story organization? Um, you know, I personally hit a rock bottom. I, uh, I reached a point in my life where I hit a deep depression and, you know, in a deep depression, when you take it to the deepest levels, you know, you have the feelings of worthlessness and, and thinking that you don't matter. And I definitely thought that I didn't matter. I thought that my story didn't matter. I thought that my life had no meaning and that it just wasn't worth living anymore. And, you know, in that rock bottom, you know, I was really deciding, you know, trying to figure out how to live and I couldn't figure it out because every day in that depression, you know, life was uh, tough. And if life was gonna continue to beat me down mentally and emotionally that way, I just, I figured that I'd rather just it stopped and continue on. I couldn't see myself just, it was too much of a battle for me to fight. But in the 11th hour, you know, I cried out to God and in that moment of desperation, you know, in that moment of, of 
true humility and, and crying out at my lowest point, I was able to remember a very simple truth that I believe we all know to be true. And that's that we as a people have inherent intrinsic value that we're valuable just because we're valuable just for being people. And that if I started nowhere and if that was the place that I was starting from, that was enough. And if my life had value, then my story has just as much value as well. I like that. But that that's a really I think that should be you need to you need to trademark that. <laughs> Thank you. So how was how were the first couple of years of your adult life like? Oh, the first couple years of my adult life, I went to prison when I was 18 years old. I did a five-year prison sentence. So, you know, those first years, they were tough. They were um, transformative in, in some good ways, but mostly in a lot of, mostly in negative ways. Um, you know, being a kid, you know, growing up, you know, in the hood in Los Angeles, you know, and just seeing, you know, relative to our level of violence over here in the States. I mean, seeing that, seeing that type of violence every day and, you know, being used to it, then going to prison, seeing more violence every day. And, you know, I kind of got numb, you know, you see people getting stabbed to death and, I think to feel for them would be too hard. And I didn't know how to feel for them. I didn't know how to feel for myself. So I think like what a lot of us do in, in prison and in that lifestyle is we just become numb to the truth. And the truth is that that stuff is wrong, but we've been living that way for so long that it becomes right for us. So, you know, that was my early adulthood and you know, when I got out of prison, I did, um, one of the big steps that I did make was that I was able to forgive my mom for, you know, the way she decided to raise, to raise me. And my mom was an extreme disciplinarian. She was pretty abusive. Um, she didn't hesitate with violence. And, you know, I kind of resented her and blamed her for a lot of my own decisions. And I kind of knew that my capacity for violence, you know, obviously on a deeper level kind of came from what I experienced as a kid. And the way I rationalized me being a part of a violent lifestyle was, well, you know, if my mom did it to me, why can't I do it to them? You know, it was also empowering in its own, in its own way. But, um, you know, when I was in prison, I heard other people's stories and they talked about their relationship with their mom. And to be honest, you know, a lot of times we're so consumed with ourselves and me being one of those persons where I thought I'm the one who had it worse, that nobody's had it worse than me. And, and it's just simply not true, you know? And I heard other people share their stories talking about they never knew their mom. If they did know their mom, she was, uh, you know, maybe had different guys over every week other moms were, you know, drug addicts and neglected their kids. And I kind of 
having that perspective given to me, I got to see my mom, you know, in a different light. And I did, um, I was able to take all the good that she did for me as well. You know, she was always there. Um, she wasn't perfect. But at the end of the day, she never left my side. And I was able to see that and and give it its due respect. And, you know, when I got out of prison, the first one of the first people I saw was my mom and I hugged her and I, you know, we kind of, I kind of made amends with all the resentment I had towards her and I let that go. And that was a big step in my healing journey. But, um, you know, past that, I then had to, uh, I still held resentment for my dad and, you know, cause at least my mom was there given given the way she raised us was kind of you know was violent but she was there my dad he wasn't there at all so i had to go on a journey of you know getting to know him and forgiving him as well and you know i was fortunate to have the opportunity to get to know my dad after i was released from prison i was on parole for two years and my dad had always called me. He was living in Texas. I was back in LA. My dad had always called me and said, if ever you need to get away and try and get your life in order, you know, my house is open to you. So of course, you know, being a, a gang member and having nothing but pride and ego, there was no way I was going to take him up on that offer. And I still kind of like to hold, I'd like holding on to that resentment towards him because it was somebody that I blamed for my consistent bad actions. But um, one day I was getting my hair cut. Uh, me and my friends walk out. I look out the corner of my eye. I see a guy. I know he, I can see the barrel of his gun. He discharges the firearm, pretty much lets off the clip. Um, I hit the deck. My friend gets shot in the face. He's bleeding, but he's alive. The bullet just skimmed him. And I remember thinking, like, man, you know what? If I stay out here, I'm not going to make it. Either I'm going to be dead or I'm going to go back to prison. And I picked up the phone and I told my dad, like, you know, I want to take you up on that offer. And so I did. And I went to San Antonio and I actually lived with him for four years. And I got to know him. And given that he wasn't around my entire life, I couldn't deny the fact that he loved me that even though his love for me wasn't perfect, it doesn't mean it wasn't real. Even though he wasn't there in person, it doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't mean that it doesn't make him the horrible person that I painted him out to be. He loved you in the and way I, that he knew how to. Exactly. And I finally got to see that. And, um, you know, I finally like the place in my heart where I held on to blaming him and resenting him, I was that place in my heart was able to heal. But after that, you know, the last person to forgive was myself. And that was the hardest part. You it know, always is. And yeah. How do you forgive yourself? Like who knows how to forgive themselves? Like how can I just hurt somebody else and be like, you know what? I'm going to forgive myself for hurting another person. You know, that person needs to forgive me. You know, and um, I did, I just, I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to let go of the guilt, the shame, 
you know, because when I went, you know, I went to prison for multiple robberies and, you know, nobody died or was killed, but there was definitely people who were traumatized and hurt on different levels and, and they were innocent people. You know, how do I, how do I, how do I let go of that? You know, it's, it's something that's, that's tough. And I just quite didn't know how I, I, I got into a deep depression. My whole life was crumbling around me. I couldn't stand my own reflection in the mirror. And at the end of the day, there was nobody else to blame. I couldn't blame my mom. I couldn't blame my dad. And that was a heavy load to carry. And, you know, the weight of my past, the weight of my shame, the weight of my guilt just tore me to pieces. And, you know, to the point where I cried out to God and, you know, and something happened in that moment. But in that moment, you know, I was able to get forgiveness, not from myself, but from God. And then from that moment, I was able to forgive myself. Right. Now, you said you were in prison for five years. I'm pretty sure it wasn't just robbing your local convenience store that gave you five years in prison. So th that must have been something that you kept doing over some time and it probably was pretty um violent so is it what pushed you into that into the actual crime itself yeah what what made it seem like this is an okay thing for me to be doing i mean in the you know i knew it was wrong but in the lifestyle I was in, it was right. You know, I got handshakes for it. I got respect for it. I got validation for it. Oh, so it's the love. acceptance. I got the acceptance. Right. And, and, um, it's a vicious cycle, but yeah, you know, it's kind of like I knew it was bad, but everything I'm hearing, it's like, man, I, you know, I felt like, uh, you know, I was rewarded for it. And I liked the reward. I liked the, the, I like at that age at being 18 and not having anything in the U S being poor in the U S and then, you know, living a life of crime and then thinking that, Hey, this is the American way. You know, I was cynical. I was like, well, if the big corporations can rob us, why can't I go and rob? So I found ways to rationalize my actions by blaming other people or institutions. And it didn't seem that bad to me. Ah, inflicting self-righteousness. Exactly. Right. So um, during your major depression, um, did you ever consider, I know this is a bit personal, but did you ever consider actually ending your life? Yeah. Did you ever try it? You know, I didn't. I mean, it was, it's mostly mental. I mean, there's a lot of guns in the house and the guns belong to my brother. So one of the scenarios was, okay, when I was really going, cause I was tired, I couldn't do it. So it was like, um, well, if I'm going to do it, 
you know, I shouldn't use my brother's gun because I don't want him to live with that. You know, he shouldn't have to, he's been through enough himself already. He shouldn't have to live through that, you know, to know that I did it with one of his guns. Um, so then the second scenario, well, I'll just jump off this, uh, I'll just jump off the building ledge. Um, but where I would jump off, that's only six stories. So then I was like, well, I don't want to jump and live. So then it was like, how do I get higher? So that if I do jump, I do die. Um, it wasn't a matter of if I was going to kill myself. It became a matter of when. And how. And how. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just... When you're going through a deep depression, that's suicide is the symptom, is the last symptom of it. And a lot of times by, the, by that time, it's too late. You know, I finally felt relief from, from that depression. One, when I cried out to God, but two, when I started talking about my issues to other people without shame, like, hey, bro, this is just what I'm going through. And I needed help and I got the help that I needed, but that's because I was able to ask and talk to other people and I wasn't judged. I was accepted. And it's like, Hey, there's a lot of people going through this thing, going through what you've been through, going through what you're going through. And you know, like it does get better, but in that deep depression, like it seems like the world never is going to get better. It seems, you know, it seems horrid, but you know, Luckily, we're not there anymore, and, and, and I've been fortunate to be able to use that part of my story as a catalyst to what I'm doing now. It does make sense. It, it, it does. And I like how you're saying you were in a really bad place until you started talking to someone else, to other people about your issues. Right. I, I get that. I, I have come to understand that men really just don't talk about what's bothering them that y'all yeah. would just rather <laughs> die than tell someone you're not literally <laughs> exactly like i feel like a lot of issues and the effects of keeping those issues in could be controlled and even eliminated if guys would you know just talk if you if you yeah. are willing to talk you will find an avenue for it And you know, it's funny I, because like my brother, who's Ralph, and uh, I think um, you might know a little bit about his story as well, but you know, when I finally had the hope to live, you know, out of that place came, was, came a realization that I would have to be honest with everything because that's the only thing that's going to get you out of that mire is the truth. You can't lie to yourself. You can't lie to others. If you want to heal, you have to heal in truth. And I remember just started, I started talking to Ralph about what I was going through and we had never talked about these issues. He looked at me and he said, you know what? I'm kind of going through the same thing. And to see that, like I saw a sparkle in his eye too. Like I think we as men, we want to talk to each other about this stuff, but we're scared because we don't know how to. Right. 
And, you know, I'm at a point now where, you know, I generally just talk about these issues all the time, but to get to the point where you feel like, where you know that it's okay to talk about what you're going through, because honestly, it can be a life or death situation. Yeah. A friend and I started an organization um, called Mentor Core. It's literally men.tallcore. So we have, it's about men's mental health. And we notice that lots of guys, especially in our society, who see men showing emotion as the most toxic thing that could ever, ever happen. And a man is supposed to be this tough, rock solid kind of thing that does not break under any circumstances. And that that site is it's anonymous, so you know you can go and um, <clears throat> check out um, self care and grounding tips and all that stuff. But in a sense, it's just kind of slowly opening up men to the idea that they can hurt and they can seek help for the hurt that they feel. But reaching out to this men is the issue, and I don't like the idea that we need to wait for it to be a life or death situation for them to talk. Like, do you think there's a way you can, we can get men to be a bit more comfortable talking about the issues, even in anonymity? I mean, we have to, I think what we're doing now is a part of it. It requires all of us. Um, It requires men being honest. I mean, that takes bravery. It takes being courageous. It's not weak to talk about how you're feeling. You know, it takes a level of strength to be vulnerable and give someone the opportunity to actually hurt you with words just because you're sharing your truth. That's not an easy thing to do. But it's the right thing to do. And it's just getting to the place of of self-acceptance and self-love and self-understanding, knowing that like life is too short to hold all this negative stuff in. You know, life's too short to bottle up your emotions and then maybe lash out in negative ways. Like if you want to enjoy life and enjoy life at its best, you know, do so sharing all of your story. You know, if Whatever you're going through mentally, that's a part of your story. There's no beating around it. Right. It's, it's part of it's part of who you are. Why be ashamed of it? Like, you know, there's nothing wrong with talking about what you're going through. And I think it's just, you know, socially normalizing it and and putting it out there more in the public sphere so more men feel comfortable just literally talking about the truth of what they're going through. Right. So, um, you mentioned that your organization, you know, goes and listens to people's stories. So how would anyone, say from my country, reach out to you if they would like to have their stories told? So right now we currently just have been doing in-person, um, hearing people's stories in person, though that's just kind of restricted us to the States, um, But if somebody over there would like to share their story, they can definitely reach out to us Mm -hmm. either on any of our social media handles at we are all one story, or you can email us at 
engagements at weareallonestory.net. And I'm sure given with the technology we have, you know, if, if someone has a computer or an iPhone, um, we can definitely try and figure out a way to make it happen. Awesome. Awesome. Now, um, what is one significant, one lesson that just stood out over all the other lessons that your adult experiences have taught you? Hmm. Tough one, huh? <laughs> that is a tough one. Um, one is, you know, for me and my story that God is real, that's one for me. Um, but uh, if we wanted like a lesson. Or oh, something yeah, that, that you learned to live by. You know, to sum it up, I think, um, to just take ownership of my own story, I think that's probably the biggest lesson that coming out of that deep depression and, and being humbled one by life and then realizing that, you know, life goes on, that there's hope, there's good people out there who don't judge and who do accept you as you are. And they're out there and there's a lot of them. Um, that love is real to, to, to know that I'm worthy as a person to give love and receive it, to never let anyone tell me what the truth of my own story is because nobody knows my story the way that I do. Nobody's an authority on my story other than me. So when I, when I walk around, I accept me and my fullness, the good and the bad. And I appreciate that I'm still here. I like that. That's a really nice one. Did you ever see yourself as being part of something as big and as influential as We're All One Story? Well, we're still trying to get it as big and as influential. No, it actually as, um, is as, as big. It is. Um, but um, no, I never did. To be honest with you, I could have never imagined this. And, and you know, just... To be here now, it's like a dream come true. And it's definitely um, invigorated my life, you know, not just believing in my own story, but believing in the stories of other people as well. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. I really feel like this is, this is a really good thing on your side, on your part. This was a really good move. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was, to me, it was, when I was in it, it was the only move left, <laughs> you know? Um, right. My back, my back was against the wall, and, you know, when you come out of a deep depression and things like that, and, and you're trying to figure out how to live life, it can be scary, and it is important to have vision for your life and to have a purpose for your life and and to start small, and, you know, I just, I just started small, and I just haven't stopped and I have brothers who helped me along the way and help and help me in this journey and um and all the people who've shared their stories like yeah it's amazing it's beautiful I could never imagined it. it you mentioned you were also in the gang with your brothers so once you made this turnaround did they join you or did they were they hesitant oh no my brothers my brothers weren't 
Ralph joined the military. There weren't they weren't gang members. That was just me. That was that was a decision I made. And um, right, you know, but I will say that when when my life began to change, um, you know, they say when one person in your group does good, everybody else does good, and that's definitely what happened. Like we feed off of each other's um, drive and. And purpose. Ralph has a purpose. You know, he's a he's a Paralympic gold medalist. He's an American hero. Um, you know, I feed off of his drive, and he feeds off of mine. And then I have Roger. He just you know got accepted to the School of Radio, Television, and Film at the University of Texas Austin, and I feed off of his drive and his energy. And I think we all benefit. We're all we're all on this same journey to be better and to give something back. Yeah, I, I feel like if you were doing this thing by yourself, you probably have given up at some point. I would have definitely given up. There's no question. <laughs> <laughs> There's no question. Um, it's not, uh, you know, even even having Ralph and Roger with me um, in the beginning, it's so hard to get something off the ground. Like the starting is the hardest part. So once you've gotten over the start part, just keep on going. But, you know, there's so much work required and there's also such a, there's an emotional toll and there's a, so many different levels of sacrifice that you have to give, you know, financially, physically, time-wise, all, everything. But I've never felt more alive. I've never felt better. And, um, you know, man, that feeling keeps me going. I like that that line. I've never felt better. That's that's usually a clear indication of growth. Awesome. Right. So, um, again, you had to wait until it was a life or death situation for you to change and, you know, find purpose. Correct. So, perhaps there's a listener of mine out there who is might also be waiting for a life or death situation to, you know. Yeah, you, you shouldn't wait for that. <laughs> so what can they do to urge themselves, you know, to push themselves to looking for something that will make them proud of their existence? I mean, I believe all of our purpose is tied to helping other people. You know, if, are you making other people's lives better? Or is your, is your constructed purpose all about yourself? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, you don't have to hit rock bottom to know that you're valuable. You don't have to want to kill yourself to know that your life has meaning. These things are true regardless of whatever stage you're at in your life. As far as finding a purpose that's unique to each individual. You know, and the time frame for that within each individual kind of varies. But when you find it, you'll know it. You'll have a feeling to it. You'll like it. Just keep on doing it. You know, keep on doing it. Yeah, that is awesome. And we have wrapped up. That is the end of my list of questions, my endless list. Thank you so, so much for agreeing to do this. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm so sure your story will have inspired a certain 
individual. It doesn't have to be a whole bunch of them. At least if I've touched one with this, with this interview, I'll have done something. Definitely. Thank you so, so, so much for listening to this episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure to follow my Instagram at underscore crid underscore or my Twitter at crid the fourth. And stay in tune, stay in touch. Let me know what you thought of it. If it helped you, if you'd like to change something, we said something that upset you, let me know. We'll see what we can do about it. Have a wonderful week and I'll see you next week weekend with yet another wonderful episode. Ciao!